Alright, this morning, January 7th, the year is 2007, it's Sunday morning, and our message this morning is Revealing the Father. Did y'all turn to the book of John? A lot of questions recently. A lot of things that uh, people have been talking about in our church have had to do with the nature of the Godhead, the Trinity, or at least what folks have decided to call the Trinity. A lot of what we've talked about is forgiveness and repentance. I don't know why. This is the way that the Spirit's moved on us. You know, I teach on all kinds of things, and 99% of the time we're in the Old Testament. And most of the time when I tell you to open to a book, where do we start all of our services? Genesis, right? So you all have that almost memorized by now. I've always taken it for granted that the Newer Testament is something that is like the cliff notes. You should already have this pretty well down. That because you didn't grow up in Judaism like I didn't, that we needed to spend more time studying the Older Testament so you would know what the Newer Testament was written out of. My whole goal in our preaching and teaching has been that you wouldn't ignore the 39 books of the Older Testament, that it would become part of your life so you would have an access to the Bible that Paul read and wrote our New Testament from. Most of our preaching and teaching has to do with Hebraic concepts. It has to do with the Jewishness of Jesus and reviving and enlightening what God did through a culture that He chose to reveal His Son in. Having said all of that this morning, one of our first services in the new year, I thought I would give you something that is like candy. It should be icing on top of the cake. So often, I preach and teach and we are solely in the Older Testament. When I refer to the New, I expect you to know it without us going there. There's only 27 books here. They're all letters that are written to people. I expect you to be familiar with it from your own studies. This morning I'll preach to you and we will not leave the book of John. And if it's not good, then there is no God because this stuff is good and it's all about God. And I am excited about it. I don't do this very often. But we're going to be in John this morning. When you think about the Word, Word, right? When I was a kid, the rap artists all started saying things like, Word to your mother. Word up, dog. we got all this vernacular that is going on. A word, according to the dictionary, is a sound, whether verbal or recorded in print, that conveys or communicates meaning and thought. For instance, close your eyes for a second. All of you. I can see you, so you have to do what I tell you to do. Nancy, close your eyes. If I say the word guitar, you all have an image in your mind, don't you? All right? Now open your eyes. If we were going to compare those images, though, would they all be the same? No, it's based on your experience, isn't it? If I tell you to think of a car, right? The word car carries with it meaning to you. It conveys a thought. But more words are needed to clarify that thought because we all have experiences. That's the spirit in which John opens his book. Watch this. I guess I better turn to John, huh? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, from your studies of Genesis, we know that John is playing on an idea that is in Genesis 1.1. In Genesis, he says, Bereshit, which is in the beginning. Here, this is Greek that this letter has been preserved for us in. This does not mean from the first play of the game, right? There are all kinds of ways to say the beginning. This does not mean from the first pitch. This means that as the stage was set, God's Word was there. It was with Him. As long as there has been God, His Word has been there. The Word is the expression of His thought. It's the way in which God communicates. And the Scripture is very clear. In a day when Augustus Caesar was around and Jesus was born, and the name Augustus was supposed to be the name of salvation, they said in the Roman Empire that there no name save Augustus by which men can be saved. How was Augustus God according to the Romans? I've taught you this before. Because he was the uh, successor to Julius Caesar who was declared to be God. So the Roman Caesars in their cult of emperor worship were gods based on a position of succession. The Bible opens up in the book of John and in the book of Genesis with a whole different claim. We're talking about a God that was not elected to God. He was not included as a saint after His death. We're talking about a God who is the originator, the Father, the source of all things. And from the very beginning, He has been trying to express and communicate with the creation. 
that expression, that communication, the Bible calls His logos, His Word. Does that make sense to you? How can you know what is in my mind unless I begin to speak to you? And in your hearing and perceiving of those things, you either understand when I'm trying to communicate or you don't. This is communication. God has been speaking a message to His people since the very beginning. Colossians 1.18, and you don't have to turn there, speaks about Jesus being the supremacy over all things. He was before all things. I'm telling you this to give you the idea, not that Jesus was a created thing, but that as long as there has been God, there's been the expression of God's thoughts that we call the Word. Hebrews tells us He is the very image of the invisible God. He's the radiance of God's glory. He says, in the past, God spoke at various times and in various ways through the prophets. But in this day, He's spoken to us through His Son, who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being. When you want to know what God is like, the book of Colossians, the book of Hebrews tells us you can look at the mirror image that is Christ. That's good news, isn't it? Have you ever wondered how on earth is it that Jesus is a man and yet He's God? Of course you have. We've been handed down through the centuries agreed upon doctrines. And these doctrines have been raised to a status that they are beyond contestation. And that if you don't understand it, you're small, you're little. If you don't think that it's perfect and well written, then you're somehow, well, they actually said, anathematized, cursed. In the 4th century, the doctrine that lays out the Trinity as we know it today says you are under a curse if you believe anything other than this. I'm not here to criticize the Trinity. I believe in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit without any question. I also believe that Isaiah speaks of God as having seven spirits. I think that that's absolutely true because it's in the Word. I like to confine our discussion to the Word and not to creeds that were handed down to us. In fact, when I read the creeds, I see them as a tool. I see them as something good, something useful, something to aid my understanding of the Word. But I don't see them as a box with which the Word has to fit within. Does that make sense to you? So this morning we're going to talk about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Can we get any that we're talking about Jesus from the beginning of everything that you know? John is on a mission to explain Jesus. We're going to read his mission statement here in just a minute. But before we get there, I want you to hear this next sentence. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. Don't you love when the Word interprets itself? In Him was life, and that light was the life, I'm sorry, that life was the light of men. Everywhere in the book of John that you see the word light, you need to understand it has to do with the life that Jesus led. What does light do? When we throw on that switch in here, what does it do? It allows you to perceive correctly the things that are around you. What you're seeing right now, we're calling yellow on these walls. It's simply a spectrum of light being reflected off of that surface that your eyes are perceiving. In Jesus' life, we learn to correctly perceive God. In Jesus' life, what we see is a reflection, a reflection that perfectly outlines what God is like for us. Now, the reason that that's so important is the Word declares that nobody had ever seen or understood God before Jesus. Now, we've seen Moses' revelation. We've seen Enoch walking with God and more. We see Abraham, the friend of God. But nobody ever understood Him in the way that Jesus explained Him in His life. And that's important because that's what we're going to talk about this morning. In Him was life. And that life, that life was the light of men. Everything that we do, He becomes an illuminating source for us. Can you say amen to that, saints? So can I. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness testifying concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. God's desire has always been that all people on the planet would be in union with Him. 
that the worldwide rebellion would be put down, that His creation would be in perfect unity with Him. Corinthians 15 says, Jesus will hand over the kingdom to the Father after all enemies have been placed under His feet. The goal of God is that all men believe Him. He Himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. God has appointed one human on the planet. One that He chose to be born in Israel in a town called Bethlehem and raised in the Galilee. Not in palaces, not under the ivory columns of the Roman Empire. In very humble circumstances, in a very specific culture, at a very specific time, because He wanted everything about this human being's life to be the perfect reflection of Him, so that we could study Him, so that we could follow Him, so that we could put our trust in Him and His way of life and find the way to the Father. That was God's goal. He was in the world, and though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. He came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. I want you to hear this. In John, what we've just seen is kind of an aside. You ever been watching a movie and they flash back to some years earlier? John is writing his gospel and he's writing it to believers worldwide, but John was a Jew. Even if he wrote this in Greek, which most people believe he did, he was a Jew and thought in Hebrew. His daily speech would have been in Hebrew. While he's writing this, he announces... Jesus in a way that both Greeks and Jews would understand. He's the very expression of God's thought. As He's talking about this Word, He then gives an aside about John the baptizer. Why would He do that? Because He's going to announce Jesus as the Messiah, the only way to the Father, and the Jewish nation was expecting someone to come first. Where did they get that idea, saints? You can speak to me this morning. That's right, Ashley, from the book of Malachi. That's what you were thinking, right? Malachi had announced Elijah would have to come first before the renewal of all things. So while John is introducing the Messiah to the world as the very thought and expression of God, he has an aside. He goes, wait, wait, wait. There are Jews reading this too. Somebody came before him and he begins to tell us about John the Baptist. I want you to read these verses with me like this though. Okay? Start back in the first verse. We're going to read a few and then skip down to the 14th, removing that aside. Not because it's not important. I just want you to follow a certain train of thought. Can you do that with me? David, can you do that with me? David's with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Do you understand how that is an unbroken chain of thought there? That if you remove the insert about John the Baptist for the Jewish audience, that what we see is that the Word that has now become flesh has always been with God. What part of Jesus had always been with God? Who He was. What was inside of Him that motivated all of His actions, that empowered all of His ministry, that was Him. That had always been with God from the beginning. That thought and expression of God simply manifested itself as a human being. What was Mary pregnant with? She was pregnant with the promises of the Word of God. In her uh, gestation period, what was formulating was a body that would contain all of the promises of God fulfilled in the man Jesus. She was pregnant with a promise. And the day that this child was born, what we had was the incarnation of God's very thoughts, who God is. Boy, isn't that beautiful? The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. How can we call Jesus the one and only? How on earth could we look at Him and say, He is the one and only Son? Well, we see that there are quite a few Scriptures that point that way. <laughs> but were there other people called God's son? Yeah, Adam was called God's son, wasn't he? 
Ezekiel called himself the people were called God's sons. So what does this term mean? The one and only. See, saints, it's nice that we received the Nicene Creed. It's nice that we can quote things that have been figured out centuries before us without thought as rote memorization. But wouldn't it be better if we understood the very things that they're trying to help you understand? Wouldn't it be better if we embraced what the Word taught, engaged the text, and let it become part of us? My mother called me this week with a great question. Last week I taught about the wells of salvation. In the patriarchal period in Israel, water was a source of life and death. And these men fought over wells. And this was symbolic of men of faith who fight to keep the well of salvation open in your lives, right? She said, how is it that the Word could say that Isaac was Abraham's only son? It says it twice. But at his death it says both of his sons were there. How on earth could that be? Mom had a great question. It's the same question that we see in John. And the answer is in the Jewish understanding. See, what happens is, if Pero has 14 kids, right? By Pero, I mean Pastor Matthew Pero sitting here. He's got 14 kids. When one of them does something that is exactly like their dad, what do you say? Oh, that's Pero's kid, right? A chip off the old block. Sometimes when my son behaves crudely, very rarely, people go, oh yeah, that's Eric's kid, <laughs> Probably not a great testimony to, to my legacy of uh, cultural correctness, huh? Your one and only son is your son that is unique in that he reflects you. Many times somebody have lots of children, but the favored child would be considered as if he were an only son. This term speaks about Jesus as unique from all of the other human beings that have ever lived because he is the exact representation of God. Now, Adam was like God, made in his image, right? But a corrupted image, not a perfect image, an image that is partial. Jesus is the exact representation. He's unique. He is the one and only one like him. Does that make sense? We can't have too many uh, uh, prints for the $1 bill, right? You have to have one that is unique, which all others are patterned after has to be one that is the true, that is the genuine. That is Jesus. John testifies concerning Him. He cries out saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me has surpassed Me because He was before Me. From the fullness of His grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. The I've received questions through the years, especially after I wrote the paper Law Dog about the righteous intentions of God's law. They'd say, why on earth does the first chapter of John say that the law came through uh, Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus? As if these two ideas were juxtaposed to each other, right? This is something we suffer from, living in a Gentile world. You remember the song, I fought the law and the law won? Alright, everybody in here over 40 does know that song, right? How about I shot the sheriff? No? Okay. Y'all have been saved all your lives. Never heard any of those songs. I know. My mom's heard them. She's nodding her head back there. To us, the word law has a negative connotation. From the word law, what we think of as death and penalty and restriction and prison. But the Hebrews thought of law as something totally different. They thought of it as life. Because the book of Deuteronomy says these commandments are your life. These two statements are not set as opposed to each other. They're set in complementary terms alongside each other. The fifth chapter of Deuteronomy, the 29th verse, I taught you about the inclination of a man's heart. What God said the day the law was given was, oh, that their hearts would be inclined to follow Me and that it would go well with them and their children's children after them. God gave the law as an expression of His character so that people would see Him and embrace Him. The law expressed God's character. But the perfect expression of God's character is not found in the law. It's found in the man, Jesus. Because the law is only a part of God's character. In Jesus, we see the perfect reflection of God in every way. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Yeshua HaMashiach. No one has ever seen God. Do you get that? It means that Moses was on the mountain. He did not see God. The book of Acts tells us 
that what Moses saw was angels. Stephen said it in his speech to the Sanhedrin. That means that when Elijah was picked up by a chariot, he did not see God. That means when Enoch walked with God and was no more, he did not see God because the Scripture says no one has ever seen God. I love this next sentence though. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. Are we talking about seeing with our eyes? He says nobody has ever seen God. Are we talking about perceiving with these eyeballs that are inside your skull? If we are, why does He say Jesus has made Him known? If I'm talking with Judah and I say, hey, Judah plus plus three, and he says six. And I said, what is three plus four? And he says seven. I look at him and I say, hey, what is five plus five? And he answers. You might say Judah sees it. He gets it. He understands. It's an expression. To see means to be able to comprehend what's around you. Jesus' life was like light, causing you to see and comprehend God all around you. Jesus was the Word, expressing God's thoughts in a way that you could see. Nobody had ever been able to understand God. Nobody had ever been able to take Him all in and all of His richness and His glory except the Son in whom all of His fullness dwells. And now we have a way we can look and see everything we wanted to know about God. In fact, we have the only way that you can look and see and understand all that God is. I've used this example many times, but there is no place, not on the moon, not if you were able to get to Pluto, not any place in our solar system where you could take in all the oceans on the earth. You just can't do it. The earth is a sphere. No matter which direction you look from, you cannot see it all. So we have the Aquarium of the Americas that bottled something from all of the seas and put it there on display for you to see. The very substance of the seas. The perfect reflection of those seas. That's what Jesus is. There's a chapel in Italy today and they painted a beautiful fresco. I don't guess that's called a fresco on a ceiling, but it's a painting on a ceiling. And the problem is that the artist laid on his back and he painted it all over the the ceiling. They didn't put enough distance between the floor and the ceiling for you to be able to stand and look up and take it all in though. It was a problem and they would go on tours from chapel to chapel to chapel to see the religious art. And when they looked up to see, trying to take it in and they stood in this position, not only could they not see it all, some of the elderly would faint because it's dizzying to try to take in something that is bigger than you are, looking in every direction. So the owner, being a wise man, put a mirror on the floor so that you could sit in one spot and stare into the mirror and not be dizzy, not fall, not be able to not comprehend it. This is what God did. He realized giving of His law that we saw something that was bigger than us, something that was unobtainable. And so He sent somebody to show us how it could be walked out, how it could be halakha, the Hebrew word for walking with God. We can see in His life that He is the mirror that reflects God. There's a mission statement in John that we should read. Turn to John 20. Don't you like when you're reading a paper and the point of the paper becomes abundantly clear at some point? I watched a movie not long ago with two very close friends. We watched the entire movie and were not able to ascertain what the point was. The way that the movie ended left us with that feeling of hollowness that thought, why did I just pay for this? And then as we began to sit and relate the events in the car, we could see that there was an agenda behind the movie. There just was not a plot. Do you all like to pay for movies like that? The reason people don't ascertain the point of the Word, the reason they don't engage the text and bring it into a meaningful place in their lives is because they've not taken it in. They simply sample what they like from this part or that part. Well, the book of John, towards the end of it in the 20th chapter, tells us, look at this verse, verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not recorded in this book. You got that? John's gospel that is written. John's a unique apostle in almost every way. You know, he was born around A.D. 10. What does that make him to Jesus? At least 10 years younger, right? He's the kid following them around. He had a unique perspective. At one time in his life, he's called Boanerges, 
sons of thunder. He wants to call down fire on people. You might get the idea that this was a violent young man when Jesus called him. But late in life, in Ephesus, under the reign of Domitian, he was called the Apostle of Love. This Word will change your life if you study how Jesus walks. It will change you from something that men mock the Son of Thunder into something that they admire and revere, the Apostle of Love. They boiled this guy in oil and couldn't kill it. Man, I love that. Not that he got boiled in oil, but that you cannot stop the godly man on the godly task. It can't be done. If a saint gets killed, it's because it was his day to get killed as long as he's in God's will. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of His disciples which are not recorded in this book. Well, if He wrote down things that He... or if there were things that He didn't write down, doesn't that mean He specially selected what He did write down? Could, I mean, is that too far of a jump for us? You can throw a Bible at me if I'm wrong. I'll duck. I'll hide. Gabriel. Gabriel threw a handful of rice at me in a restaurant last night. It's very funny, Gabriel. It was good. I did my best to get him back, but it was too late. The uniqueness of the moment had passed. You ever retaliate and it was hollow and not good? Somebody throws rice at you in a restaurant, just turn the other cheek. But, <laughs> all right, Jesus did many things that were not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Yeshua is the Hamashiach, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in His name. Why did John write the book? He wants you to understand and believe who Jesus is. And in that belief, He wants you to find life. Life is what Jesus had. It's what He displayed. Everything else is death. Every way of life that you have outside of Christ is death. It's the way that was handed down to you from your forefathers, from Adam right on down. But when you begin to believe in Jesus, when you begin to see Him for who He is, when His light from His life illuminates to you your surroundings and you walk differently, the Bible says you have crossed over from death into life. Now, saints, this is supposed to be a moment in time. It's supposed to be an awakening. Sometimes it's many awakenings starting at this age right on up where you're constantly becoming more and more aware and making deeper and deeper commitment till there is nothing of your desire left and only God's. Your life is supposed to be consumed in Him. His will, not your will. The perfect expression of that was on the cross. Too often, saints don't live sold out lives and the world's confused because the light that we're supposed to be shining looks so different from Jesus. This morning we want to try to examine the way that Jesus revealed the Father through His deeds in His life so that what we will see is the way that we should live. We see the things that we should do. To the Hebrew, salvation was a daily event. It was something that you simply walked in. It was action-oriented. It's a Greek thought that we just believe certain things, sit on a pew and collect dust. That's wrong. That was never the case. Hebrews were action-oriented. You believed, so you walked us. You walked with God. You didn't just believe Him. You walked with Him. John wrote this book so that we would understand. Turn with me to John 5. I told you we won't leave John today, but you're going to get very familiar with John. Look at the 19th verse. Jesus has been talking about doing the work of His Father. And He explains Himself in John 19. I'm sorry, 519. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by Himself. He can do only what He sees His Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Before I go any further with that, it's very good to feel a warm, fuzzy feeling to feel anointed in a worship service, get excited and run out and do something for Jesus. The problem is not what you've done for Jesus. It's all of the other things that you did that are right along beside that that paint a picture of a muscle. Salt and fresh water coming from the same spigot. But in Jesus we saw only what the Father was doing. 
For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Yes, to your amazement, He will show Him even greater things than these. There is no part of the Father that is hidden from the Son. There is no part of God's character that is not revealed in Jesus' actions because the Father shows the Son all He does. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. We could keep going with this, but we're going to stop there at that particular passage. Have you ever thought about Joseph as Pharaoh? Hmm? Joseph was a Hebrew. He's not an Egyptian, is he? Hmm. Just kind of there, right? Sold out by his brothers. Boy, what's that story sound like? Put into a pit, elevated out of the pit, but kept in prison. Elevated out of the prison and finally becomes somebody in a palace with the king's ear. What does that king do? Well, he entrusts all judgment to him. He gives him his signet ring so that his word is the same as that of Pharaoh. Did we have two Pharaohs? We only had one position of Pharaoh. But one caused the other to be revered as Pharaoh because he had all of his authority and when he spoke it was just as if the Pharaoh were speaking. It's kind of a de facto Pharaoh, if you will. Isn't that interesting? Next time you read Corinthians 15 and see the relationship between the father and son, you might think about some of the Hebrew examples that they had seen this in the Word. Because when we describe God... And it sounds like we're describing three gods that is a major stumbling block to the people that gave us this book. I am not a oneness preacher. To me, it sounds like semantics and it gets ridiculous. But I'm encouraging us to adopt the language of the Word. Does that make sense? We received this from a specific people group. And do you know that their hearts cry, is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one? We're going to read to you some more about that in a minute. That's Shema... Yah Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai, and then the last word, Ehad, one. Jesus used the word Ehad over and over and over to describe His relationship with the Father. You're going to see that, and I'll tell you what it means. Go to John 10. I know we flipped lots of pages in here, but I confined it to one book. What else would you want this morning? In John 10, we're going to start in the 22nd verse. Then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. What's the Feast of Dedication? It's Christmas, right? No, not hardly. Hanukkah. So is Hanukkah biblical? Yes. Is Christmas biblical? Sort of. (laughs) Sort of. not telling you Christmas is not okay. Y'all saw me dress like a fat Santa and hand out presents to my kids. Y'all remember that message. But Hanukkah is certainly biblical. Don't look at people as if they're doing something wrong if they do it. In fact, you might see the pastors in this church do it in the years to come. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around Him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Have you never that Jesus just said plainly? Right? Have you never been caught in a situation where somebody says, prove to me Jesus is God. So you get out your Bible importance and you look for the word God next to the word Jesus and the very best that you can do is two Scriptures? If you had to do that this morning, can you two examples? Thomas says, you are my Lord and my God. The same guy we call Doubting Thomas. How sad is that? Paul in chapter uh, 9 of Romans says, Jesus is God over all. Short of that, what you see are Him being the fullness of the Godhead. You see Him being the exact representative. Jesus is God. I, let, me, let me lay that right out there. I believe Jesus is God. But have you never been caught on the spot and wished Jesus had just said plainly, Hey guys, I'm here. I am God. You do not see that in the Scripture. Jesus expected us to see in His life the character and nature of God and realize. That's what He expected. Saints, we run around and we tell everybody, I am Christian, right? I am Christ. That's what that means. I am little Christ. We have to announce it 
Because we do not expect people to see it in our behavior. The Bible takes the exact opposite stand. It expects people to see your behavior what you are entitled. It's the same reason I don't hand out titles in here. We don't say, oh, so-and-so is youth pastor. We wait for somebody to act like a youth pastor. We see that behavior and then we title it. We wait for somebody to act like a deacon and then we title it. This is a Hebrew concept. It's a Greek concept that says, I will make you president and then you act like a president. This is not biblical, not in any way, shape, or form. They said, hey, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. And he goes on to speak with... Well, I guess I want to read a little more of that. He told them through what he did. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. When Jesus says this, even if this is recorded in Greek, Jesus was born a Jew. The language of the Jews is Hebrew. He prayed every day that the Lord our God is one, is Ehad. The word Ehad means one, just like it's translated. But in the word Ehad, there is room for, and it is generally understood, that there can be a plurality within the one. Do you know what that means? That means that the nation of Israel could be called one when they acted in one accord. When he says he and his father were one, what that means is we have such unity that we are indistinguishable as separate entities. We are acting in one accord. In fact, they could not be Ehad if there was a difference of opinion among them. Could not be. That would not be Ehad. This is a concept within Judaism, within the Hebrew language, that is built in. This is why they're not questioning that statement. They understand Him very much to be making Himself equal with God and they want to kill Him for it. Incidentally, scan down. After they talked to Him about wanting to uh, stone Him in verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? Are you surprised to see that written in the Bible? That's a very New Age thought, isn't it? Psalm 82 says, When you act like God, you are one with Him, and it's as if God were doing it, you are little gods. Is that not very much the concept of the body of Christ? The problem with us is that we claim to be the body of Christ, but we do not have the actions of Christ. That's like claiming to be a professional football player, but never having stepped on the field, never having suited up. If He called them gods to whom the Word of God came and the Scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as His very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse Me of blasphemy because I said I am God's Son? Hear this verse. Do not believe Me unless I do what My Father does. Come on, some of you here are parents. Some of you will be parents soon. we got a picture of an unborn baby, but a baby on the wall right there. Parents are fond of telling their children, do as I say and not as I do. Why? Because we know what to do. We just have a problem carrying it out sometimes. Jesus had no such problems. He said, do not believe me unless I do what the Father does. Have you ever been told, well, you just have to take faith. Oh, blind faith. Who can know? We just can't understand. Kind of a mealy mouth, wormy little answer, Right? Did you ever find that satisfying? Did somebody ever look at you and say, Oh, Cass, just take it on faith. And you were like, Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. I feel like my life is complete now. Of course not. What do you do? You smile, pretend to feel gracious for the answer, and you walk away and... You know? God does not expect you to take anything on mere faith. This idea of blind faith, of unsubstantiated faith, is wrong. You find God and Ronald Reagan had something in common. They trust but verify. Some of you from the Cold War era, you remember that, huh? We told the Soviet Union, we're going to reduce arms, you're going to reduce arms. Well, how can we know there's trust? Well, we're going to also verify. We trust 
but verify. God has given us many reasons to trust Him. He never asked you to trust Him in any area that He has not already laid out and proven Himself to you. Moses says, how can I know that you're going to bring them out? He says, well, let me give you three good reasons you'll know. Give him three miracles. You see it over and over and over. God has never asked without knowing anything about His character, without understanding who He is, to do something for Him. Never. In fact, it's when you begin to see who He is that your trust in Him grows and greater and greater faith is there. It's a wrong idea. It's because of no academic scholarship in the Word anymore that we say things like that. It alleviates you from having to study, dig, or understand. From having to look into the character of God. We simply say, who can know we just have to trust? As if there are not 66 books written about His deeds and His miracles and His mighty workings so that you have something to base your faith on. God is not unreasonable. He never said, oh, simply just believe. He laid His character out there so you could look and say, man, He's awesome. He's worth trusting. He's worth believing. Now, just so happens that Judah may not know that I can fly. Okay? But if every other thing Dad has ever told him is true, might he have reason to believe Dad can fly? Man, I can buy a ticket on an airplane like you wouldn't believe. It may not be the way he thought, but it can be done. That's what God asked you to do. Based on my character with you, based on my history with you, David, because I've provided for you every time before, Steve, can you not trust me that this time I will do what I did the other 99 times? And we say yes and amen. That's not blind Jesus said, do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. Verse 38, But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand or comprehend that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. When you see me do the things that only God can do, you need to know it's because God is in me and I'm in Him. That's what He's teaching them. This was all to answer the question, are you the anointed one or not? I said, come on, man. Look at what I do. I'm not what I say. Look at what I do. When John the Baptist doubted, what did Jesus say? Go back and tell him what you see me doing. Jews were very action-oriented. You know what? They still are. I work with some Jews. <coughs> I've been to Israel a couple times. My experience is that you can tell them what you believe all day long. They don't really care. They want to see the ways in which your life are different and whether or not you really are different than all the other people that have said the exact same trash to them before. I believe that God will again turn His attention to Israel. That He will again raise them to be chief among the nations. That we owe this people a great debt. But you know what the greatest debt you owe? It's to the nation of Israel and their leader, the King, Yeshua, to walk as He walked. The time for low living is over. The time for half commitments and compromise is over. People do not believe unless they see you doing it. The book of Acts is not a special time in church history that has passed away. It's what you choose to do to this day. The Acts of the Apostles did not die with the last apostle because the apostles never died out. On our church website, we've proven in Scripture, you guys did as a trivial question, that there are at least 23 mentioned by name. They never stopped becoming apostles. Andronicus and Junus were apostles before Paul, the Scripture says, and yet you know nothing of their lives. When did they become apostles? This thing was not supposed to morph into some business-like structure with steeples and stained glass. It was supposed to be full of the power and deeds of Christ. We're running out of time, always. Turn to John 14. Is that all right? Y'all mind going with me a little further? Why get a happy meal when you can have a steak? John 14, verse 5. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? If you've ever read the Word and been confused, that's okay. They walk with Jesus and we're confused every day. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's the law of the manna and Aaron's staff, but that's another sermon. No one comes to the Father except through Me. 
If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. God love Philip. There was nothing in him that was false. There was no guile in him, the Scripture says. What was in his heart came right out of his mouth. Lord, just show us the Father. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe the evidence of the miracles themselves. Is that blind faith? Not at all. This guy had seen Jesus feed the 5,000. He had seen Jesus do these things. He said, well, that's great for him. I wasn't there. Saints, think deeply. Dig into your heart. What has God already done in your life that the devil has tricked you into thinking was coincidence? That as time has gone by, the memory has faded of the great Red Sea deliverance in your life. I know what it was like to be captive to my sin, to be crying and beating my chest before God because despite my best efforts, I could not do it on my own and I felt His supernatural power change me. Come on, saints. That ought to be touching somebody. Do you not know what it was like to be in the prison of your own making and set free? Because if not, you've not been saved. Now I know we think of Christianity as good moral living. We all agree on the same set of beliefs. Christianity is when you were trapped in death and brought into life. And if you've never acknowledged the fact that you came out of death, you're still there. You've just been told that the hell that you're in is a paradise. You've bought fire insurance and you sit on seats and make preachers happy and fill their offering boxes. I'm okay, you're okay. Meanwhile, we all coast the ship straight into hell. Not very much fun, huh? I want a real, relevant Christianity. One that shows up in our actions every day. One that impacts the community and the lives that are around you. The leaven is supposed to work through the whole loaf. Look at the loaf that is your life. Is the leaven working through it? This is Christianity. At the bonfire, people gave testimonies and said this year they found out what it was to be a Christian. How serious this was. It is great to know those things. I am so excited that you've learned them. That means that we've done something right. But we're only blessed if we do them. Isn't that what the book of James says? It's not the one who hears the Word that's blessed. It's the one who does it. Amen. The mission statement of John was that these things had been written down so that you guys, so that me, we might believe. And in believing that Jesus is the Son, we might find life, a better way of life. Then let's look at what he wrote down for us. Fair enough? Let's look at some of the major events in John. What about these events does this communicate to the children of God? What do you see in it that God's message is for you? Turn to John 1. You all bear with me ten minutes? Yeah? Ten minutes for the words of life? Should we stop short and sell it for $19.99 as if it wasn't given to us freely? Hmm. Not me. There are lots of things that Eric's going to give an account for on that day. I would like not to add to the list. Hey, by the way, John 17, 6, Jesus is praying for the believers. He says, I have revealed you to them, Father. I have revealed them to you, Father. In Jesus' actions, you find out who the Father is. Without Jesus, without His actions, you cannot comprehend Him. The Word declares it, and it's true, and history bears it out. Y'all in John 1? Look at verse 43. <coughs> the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. 
and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Who did Moses write about in the law? He wrote about a prophet who had come who had had the very words of God. If you didn't listen to him, you were cut off from the community of believers. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there, Nathaniel asked? A little healthy skepticism, right? Come see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under a fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Interesting that you have the expectation of a prophet there and a king, but that's another message. Why on earth would this be included in the Word for you? If John specially selected the miracles, why does he include this Word of knowledge in the very beginning of his book for his readers to hear and see? Because he wants you to know and God wants you to know that the character of the Father is that He is searching. He is looking at you right where you are, searching your heart to see what is in it. And in Nathaniel, he found a heart that there was nothing false in. He was under a fig tree. What's a fig tree represent in the Bible? Israel, right? He's doing the best he can with where he's been planted. He doesn't have the full revelation, but what he has, he is trying with. He's not put up a facade. He's not lying to everybody around him about who he really is. He is trying. God wants us to know that He has been watching our lives right where we are, seeing where He planted us, to determine is there anything false in us. Watch this. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You shall see even greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Another message called Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. This is the spot where Jacob laid his head on a rock and had a dream about angels ascending and descending at that place. Jesus is telling him, I am the housing for God. This is in me the place with which you have access to the kingdom of heaven. Back and forth. Heaven can speak to you and you can speak to heaven. Why would that be included in the Scripture? Do you think it's because God wants you to know that He has been searching you? He's been watching you and He wants to communicate with you. Could that be? If these are specially selected, that that's why it was specially selected, turn the page. Go to John 2. In John 2, starting in verse 6, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. That's 150 to 230 pounds. About the weight of most men. A few like me or just a smidgen more. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then He told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Interesting, it doesn't say grape juice. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first. Then after the, che- then after the guests... I'm sorry. Everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. We have to be talking about Welch's, right? Yeah, I'm sure. Hear this verse. But you have saved the best for last. This was the first of the miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed His glory and His disciples put their or trust in Him. Why is this in the Bible? If John specially selected these for the purpose of you believing and it changing your life, why is this there? It's there because God wants you to know He can take ordinary things like stone water jars, like ordinary men, And He wants you to know He does extraordinary things with them. This is His heart. It's who He is. He knew what you were when He called you. But He can do extraordinary things. In fact, the very best in your life, He saved till now. The very best is still ahead of you. 
Because when you complete the race having done what He's required you, it is like the very best wine at the end of a meal. He's included it in His Word because He wants you to know there is hope for you. He searched you to see what is false in you. He's examined your situation. He's explained and showed us through His character that we have access into the heavenly realms. And He wants you to know He can take you, an ordinary thing, and do something extraordinary with you. There is hope, saints. Thank you, Jesus. Turn to John 5. We could do this in every chapter, but somehow I think I might lose you to the Sandman. John 5, 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five, colored, five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. King James says invalids. What an ugly word, huh? An invalid person. I know you can't relate to that. There's no area of your life where people have looked at you and said they're crippled. They're disabled. I know you can't relate to feeling as if it's simply not right to get some area of your life right. That it's not possible. One who, was, who had been there and been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Saints, we are fond sometimes of whining and moaning about our imperfections and the struggles in our life. This is included in the Word of God because Jesus is saying, do you want to get well? Because if you want to change, there is power available for you. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Jesus, I've been trying and failing and trying and failing and I can't do it on my own. Good. That's what He was waiting for. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. Why would John include that an invalid of 38 years got healed? Because He wants you to know it doesn't matter how long you have struggled in your situation. With the Word and direction from Jesus, you can be made whole. Because He wants you to work in the kingdom. He wants you to pick up your mat and walk. There is no temptation which you cannot overcome. It doesn't matter how long you've been failing. He wrote these things so that we would believe and find life. Maybe you never got it right in some area. You can get it right today. In John 6, look at the fifth verse. Let me tell you about this because we're out of time. Jesus asked a question of these men. He said, hey, where are we going to get food for all these people? Good old Nathaniel, Philip, they speak up. Say, hey, eight months' wages is not enough to buy food. The Word says Jesus asked them this to test them. He already had in mind what He was going to do. And then He fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. God is not limited by your limitations, saints. He took Abraham after He defeated kings, five of them, caused Abraham to refuse the tribute from these kings that he had defeated. And then Abraham goes a step further and he gives a tenth of everything he has away. He doesn't receive anything from the world and then gives a tenth of what he already has away. And he inherits the world, Romans says. God is not limited by your limitations. In fact, your limitations are in your life so that when God goes abundantly beyond them, you can give Him the credit and say, wow, you did immeasurably more than I could ask for or imagine. Come on, saints. Why is this included in the Word? He wants you to know that your limitations He does not share. He can go beyond what you thought could be done. He may even put you in a situation where you are struggling so that He can see whether or not you will trust that He will take you beyond where your natural resources could take you. My whole life seems like it's that way. But it's a life of faith. How good is that? In John 8, there's a woman who's caught in adultery. 
they bring her up there, they're going to stone her. Right? He said, whichever of you has no sin, throw the first stone. They left from the oldest to the youngest. Then he turns to the woman and says, now, who's condemned you? No one, sir. Go and leave your life of sin. Why is that in the Word? Because when the whole world turns on you and wants to kill you, there is someone who will not condemn you. All He wants from you is for you to leave your life of sin, to trust Him, and to move on. The character of God revealed in Jesus is not an angry guy wanting to beat you with a stick. It's somebody looking to pardon you when everybody else would throw you away. Look at John 9. There is a man who is born blind. His eyes are opened. As time goes on, the Pharisees are questioning him. And he says, come on, man. You've already asked me this and you don't believe. Why are you asking me again? Is it because you want to become His disciple too? They said, oh, you're a sinner steeped in birth. He said, now that's remarkable. You say I'm a sinner and this man's a sinner. You don't know where he comes from. And yet God used him to open the eyes of a blind man. This is put in the Word to show you it doesn't matter what the religious world says. It doesn't matter what argument is stacked against you. Your simple testimony of what God has done in your life overcomes the world. It overcomes everything. The heart of God is not the superior intellect. It's the man with the experience. My favorite quote of all times is Smith Wigglesworth. The man with the experience is not at the mercy of the man with an argument. John, put this in the Word so that you would know when you've experienced God. Don't let anybody talk you out of it. Don't let anybody look down on you. He can overcome them in you with no problem. You find out later this guy knew nothing about Jesus except what He had done for him. He didn't know He was the Messiah. He didn't know anything. Jesus asked him, do you believe on the Son of Man? He goes, who is He that I might believe? But because of what Jesus had already done, He trusted Him when He gave Him the rest of the revelation. Not blind faith even from a blind man. We're going to read John 10, then we're going to close. In John 10, let's go to John 11, I'm sorry. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled and said, Where have you laid Him? You know, the context is their friend Lazarus has died. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Why is this in the Word? If the very actions of Jesus reveal the Father, why is this in the Word? Because John wanted you to know through Jesus' actions that God is not untouched by the calamities in your life. He is moved in spirit. I didn't like that song when it first came up that said God had tears and that we catch them because that's not my vision of God. And yet in the man, Jesus, in the reflection, in the mirror of Jesus, what do you see? God's moved to tears with your problems. Understand though, His compassion, His emotion, is not a limitation. It's not because He can't do something about it. He's going to fix this situation. He just did it to show us that He cares. We serve a God who cares about the daily events of your life. Then the Jews said to Him, See how He loved Him. But some of them said, Could not He who opened the eyes of a blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more deeply moved. You see how he keeps recording that? You think God doesn't care that you need to sell a house? He cares. Think that He doesn't care that your back is hurt? He cares. That you need a job? He's deeply moved. Not because He's not going to fix the problem, but because He sees how you are affected by it. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb, the very face of the problem. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. 
Jesus, you can't fix this problem. This problem's bigger than you. Then Jesus said, Did not I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? The reason Jesus is here is to reveal to us the scope and depth and breadth of God. He wants us to understand. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank You that You have heard Me. I knew that You always hear Me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe You sent Me. Everything that Jesus did and said was for the benefit of those standing here. This book was written containing the events for our benefit. When He said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. John could have written about so many miracles. Other people were from the dead. Why is this one written about? It's written about because he wanted us to see God is not untouched by our tragedy. He's moved to compassion for us. But He is willing to remove the stone as long as we're willing to deal with the odor. Saints, we can't bury things in our lives. We can't hide behind the rock, the death. We're supposed to cross over into life. And when He speaks to you, Lazarus, come out, you have to be obedient. And then He begins stripping off the death clothes from you. The character of God brings life to dead places. It takes things that stink and makes them pretty. He recycles human beings for a living. It's what God does. He's recycling this creation. The question is, now that you see His character, now that you know that He's moved by your circumstance, and you hear His voice saying, come out, how do you respond? Do you hide behind your rock in your stench wrapped in your grave clothes that have comforted you for the last four days? Or do you leave the filthy rags behind and be made white as snow? I want Jesus. I want all that He is. I want you to have all that He is. This book and the man's life were recorded for one reason, that you might understand what you have, that you might walk in life. This is a new year. It's one of the first sermons of the new year. But you guys have been in church a long time. How many sermons do you need to hear before you walk in life? It's time, saints. Today is the day of salvation. Stand up. Let's pray.